Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here with The Pure Now Show. This is episode number 30. My guest today is James Cross. James is a creative director at BBC Creative in the UK. He's been partnered up with Tim Jones for over 15 years, creating award-winning campaigns, coming up from the bottom all the way to the creative top. Here we go. Hey, James. Hi, Mark. How are you? I am super duper. Thanks. How are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm a little tired. It's quite early here, but everything is good. Yeah. What time is it in merry ye old Manchester? It's just gone 8 a.m., which because we're in lockdown these days is actually quite early for me to actually be up and around. <laughs> oh, so you guys are you guys are in lockdown right now? Well, I say lockdown. I say we're working from home. So you've kind of over two years, I've got from this habit of kind of being sort of around at 7 a.m. to sort of maybe getting out of bed more like 8.30 a.m. so I can be sat at my desk for, for nine minutes. So yeah, wow. it's, a different, it's a different world now for sure. Well, let me first say thank you for coming on the Pure Now Show. Totally appreciate you spending some time to chat with me and talk about your professional career and everything that's kind of going on with you. And and I didn't realize that you guys were still under some uh, restrictive movement there. I I, I, w- I was under the assumption that most of the world was kind of freely moving about. So what's... what's- no, we are, no it, it, we are pretty much we're free. There's the odd place that has to wear a mask, but COVID doesn't exist in the UK, according to the government anymore. Uh, according to the government, but what about according to you? What is going on according to you, James? Uh, well, I mean, it's a different world in terms of um, we. There's a, a hybrid model in terms of working, so nobody is is in the office five days a week, for example. At the BBC, we operate a sort of two plus three model, where it's two days in the office, three days from home. So it is a, a very different world and obviously that brings its own challenges and you know benefits too. I think the older you are the more benefits it has. The younger you are in terms of you know learning from other people I think there's there's probably things that my generation took for granted like you know having more senior more experienced people around to come and you know tell you what's what and, and stuff. So you know, I think it's harder for the, the younger generations coming into the industry. But, you know, from my point of view, there are a lot of benefits in terms of my, the, your work-life balance. I think a, a lot of people are finding that's brilliant. There's no, you know, we're not commuting for two, three hours a day and, and things like that. So, yeah, I quite like it. But, yeah, there are there's certainly challenges within the industry. Well, let, let's talk about that a little bit. How has it potentially negatively impacted you professionally although maybe it's benefited you personally in having this kind of separation of church and state where you've got this time for yourself and uh, you feel that it's more balanced how has that affected uh, working for the BBC and delivering work to clients meeting with clients working with deadlines client management all that has shifted I mean, it was moving in that direction anyway, but now everything is so solidified in that way. How do you feel that that's affected your work? I don't know if it's affected the work massively. I mean, we kind of we kind of never know in a way. I think we, we still operate under the same processes. We, um, with the sort of creative department, you know, the, the way Tim, my, my creative, co-creative director and I run our teams, you know, things haven't changed massively in, in that sense, I suppose. 
what we lack is every meeting we have is formal now. There's no, you know, catching someone in a corridor and then suddenly you hear something or being inspired or making certain changes have to wait to, for very scheduled meetings. Whereas I think I always enjoyed, you know, being able to float around a department and, you know, chatting to someone over a coffee or, like I say, just seeing them at the, at the sort of copier machine and just, you know, you could just say something and you'd hear something. So that's hard. I think the level of distractions are hard. I have um, ADHD, so it's kind of being at home can also be a bit of a nightmare in terms of there are a million things to distract me. So I have to really get in the zone in order to sort of work and concentrate. So that I do find that a challenge. You know, not having a, a not leaving the house. I suppose from a mental health point of view. Being at home all the time is great, and then you kind of crave, you know, other environments. So I don't strictly adhere to the two days in the office thing. I sometimes might be in three or four, or you know, go somewhere, go and sit in a coffee shop for the day, and I work from there. But yeah, so it certainly brings its challenges. A bit, but I think there are also positives. I think I'm certainly, I'd say, physically a lot healthier than when we were in the office full-time I think the work we do like I say hasn't necessarily been affected but it's certainly influenced that you are a, a, a product of your environment so I'd say the work that the BBC have, have done BBC creative we always have to reflect the culture going on around us and, and we've done that quite well so there are certain pieces of work that perhaps in times gone by we may not have been inspired to write but equally I, I sometimes wonder if there's stuff we would have done that we haven't done because you know, we, were, we are in the situation we're in. We're very much into uh, designing experiences for our shows on the BBC. So we kind of say it's like we don't want to just be preaching to the choir all the time and putting out promotions which appear on our own TV channels and radio stations. So that has certainly been affected by... The, the, the change in the world it's you know initially when there were restrictions it was harder to sort of do these things and we had to think cleverly about them so we don't just want to do billboards for example we want to create those billboards as some sort of experience and something that people are going to share and it's you know going to have PR value but obviously that's hard to do when everyone's everyone's locked in their, their houses. Well, and with the predominance of social media, you've kind of had to shift your focus into leveraging that massive audience. How has that yeah. changed the way you think about producing work, uh, the style of work, maybe the length because of attention span yeah. deficit disorder that the world yeah, pretty yeah. much has at this point? Um, how have you tailored the kind of work that you're doing to present these projects for the BBC so you can get the net results that you're looking for? Well, I mean, in terms of the sort of the general approach, um, we're, we're no longer, I would say, a TV first agency where everything we used to do was all about sort of the big TV production. There's always a need for that and an always a, a need to do it well, but whatever we do, I think if we're making, especially making TV, I love nothing more than crafting something to a point where everyone else would have stopped just going a little bit too far because that's kind of where the magic happens and 
you know people become very interested in in what you're doing if you know your your production technique is you know slavish and way way more involved than it probably needs to be we put massive pressure on ourselves but you know it nine times out of ten creates magic and I think in terms of durations of, of what we make, uh, certainly shorter, we work closely with you know, TikTok and, and Facebook and, and YouTube. We regularly have their, their creative teams consult with us just to tell us what's the, the best way to approach things, what, you know, how important is that first five seconds if we're making a pre-roll, for example, what kind of attention spans are we dealing with on TikTok, which, for example, which is is super frightening. You know, that's not even five seconds, it's less than that. And it's just interesting, it's good to know, it's great as a creator to know your parameters because I think that focuses your attention and, you know, you work within that space. And I, I always think restrictions on a creative are, are good things. So, yeah, it's making way more work that that is social first is certainly the biggest difference and maybe an, an enforced change that was coming anyway it certainly happened faster than than I, I think anyone thought it would and because of that i mean the viewing audience is massive so your mm. impact actually even in four seconds may have a far more reaching uh, effect of nabbing an audience than previous TV advertising just because the massive numbers uh, that you're reaching versus the, the more narrow field of television advertising. So is there some kind of a balance there where you're actually getting the results that you want because of the increase in numbers, even though your window of, of display is shortened? It, has there been some kind of a, an adjustment in that? Uh, I think um, there certainly has. I mean, I'm always... Maybe I'm always quite skeptical of of figures for viewing figures for on social. I think you know things are recorded. You know, you do, there's no guarantee of someone's attention. But yes, in terms of the viewing figures, which is essentially how we measure everything at the BBC, they have they have been strong. They've got they've got stronger. Um, I'd like to think the way we've we now approach um, advertising and, and promoting our, our shows has something to do with that, of course. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we still, we still make the, the longer form, the longer form work, but yeah, there, there's certainly the work we've done, I would say organically is, is more shareable. And that's probably comes as a result of being, you know, so social first. Right. You're listening to the Pure Now Show, a creative podcast for creatives presented by Balance. Well, let's go backwards a bit. Uh, you evidently started in the music business before you did much. And it sounds like you had some fun for a little while, not doing a whole mm. lot, but being in an environment, uh, music, you were obviously super into the music scene. Um, yes. Yeah, sure. how, how did you, one, how did you get there? And, and were you yeah. raised in Manchester? Or is that your hometown? No, my, my hometown is Northampton, which is in kind of... It's hot. It's kind of halfway between Birmingham and London, um, so it's a bit of a nowhere town. Um, it's a it's a big town, but there's no reason to go there 
really, uh, you know, everyone leaves kind of right. place. So it's kind of, I was always frustrated growing up, you know, wanted to live in a city, Manchester especially, um, through music, it's got such a rich musical heritage um, with, you know, bands from, you know, Joy Division, New Order, right through to today. It's like a really buzzing scene and it's always, for a small town boy, it's been massively exciting and, and still is. And that, and you know, I've always, I've always loved music. Growing up, uh, I wanted to. I was fascinated by Creation Records and a guy called uh, Alan McGee, who signed bands like Oasis, who were hugely popular. You know, it wasn't necessarily the music. Mu- I loved the music, but I was always fascinated by the the business side of it, and always thought it was super cool that you could, you know, have an office job and wear sunglasses all day if you really wanted to. And I worked there. As a student, I used to go in once a week to Pop Tones, which Creation Records closed down and became Pop Tones, and they were in London. And there, I was just I was just making tea and unpacking bags, and then later realised that I may have been unaware that I was a bit of a, a drugs mule. I was regularly sent to random addresses in North London to pick up packages, which I told were T-shirt samples or record samples. <laughs> and then bring them back to the office, which was all a bit strange, and I was very naive. Um, And then I worked at a a label called Shifty Disco Records, which uh, everyone was generally pretty high all the time. So my office hours were um, 11 a.m. till 2 (laughs) p.m. And I think my dad realised that this was no way to no way to be. And I think at one point it was costing me more to go to work than I was actually making in a day. So I decided, um, having written lots of, I used to do lots of press releases for them with no, I've got no training in that. I just confidently took that job on, um, and that got me a very strange interview with a chap called Mike Johnson who who gave me my first ad agency job. I didn't really know what advertising was or certainly what the business of advertising entailed at that point. And um, yeah, I left Shifty Disco um, on a Friday night and started at BNB on Monday morning. Wow. Shifty should have been the giveaway. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was chaos. But remarkably, they still kind of exist. So, um, yeah, more power to them. So you did, so you went into the field of copywriting and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, how did you mature in that? How did you become inspired to continue down that path and and become, you know, more in charge of the creative scene. Yeah, um, I suppose uh, I started off writing um, sort of local, what they call dealer ads for for Saab, um, uh, the Swedish car brand. Um, so it's kind of low levelish work, and I suppose I learned the trade by becoming very nerdy about it very quickly. So. You know, a party trick of mine was always, you know, every DNA D annual from, say, 1990 to, you know, 2005, I could pretty much tell you where where certain pieces were, what page they were on, um, you know, who wrote it. Um, so I studied, I studied other people's work. You know, I would read avidly and lift phrases out of books and, you know, I'd learn that way. And obviously Mike Johnson was a, a real mentor who, you know, real really was quite strict on me in many ways. 
and it, you know, it was really good. The other way I suppose I matured and within as being a junior, I was made, I was made, my business cards were always said senior copywriter on them because I was teamed with an art director who was 20 years older than me and he didn't want me going into meetings with a, a business card that said junior copywriter on them. So I had to grow up very quickly. So I suppose I was seen as maybe more experienced than I actually was. In those early years, I wore glasses that I didn't really need to make me look slightly older. And, you know, I've always been a believer in kind of fake it till you make it. So it kind of it, it carried me through with, you know, this self-confidence that I was able to sort of bring to the fore we were presenting and, you know, certainly served as well. But my ambition was always to work in TV and this was doing, you know, like localised car advertising for, like I say, Saab. We did some for uh, Vauxhall, which is another General Motors brand. And, you know, it went well. We were able to do a little bit of TV. Um, and we were just, I suppose, um, we were just aggressive at the time in terms of we were the agency that did all the small stuff and we'd regularly meet with Lowe in, in London who were doing all the sort of the big sort of brand advertising stuff and challenged the client that, can we, you know, can we have a go at this? Can we, can we do it? And eventually we did break through and, you know, change, change the agency really. They, they were quite lethargic as a, an agency at the time who were working on Saab at, you know, that brand level. I've always, you know, I suppose it's maybe not being in London all the time. It's, you have that desire just to prove yourself and, you know, you, you kind of always, always ready to show, you know, show the world what you can do because when you're not in London or you're, you know, you're not in New York or whatever, you, you kind of have to, I feel, fight for those opportunities as a, as a junior creative, you're not working on the, you know, the sexy brands, you're, you're kind of doing the shit that nobody else wants to do. So, you know, where in itself there are opportunities, but so we've always, you know, Tim and I, especially since we've been working together, have taken that very seriously. And that's always, you know, got us in the, the right rooms with the right people. It's it's all about attitude, which I think, you know, success in the creative industries really is. Well, like you said, you guys are zigging while everybody's zagging. So, you know. Yeah, uh, we stole that from we stole that from BBH. But yeah, some people are like to say that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love it. It's yeah. but that's the that's the approach. You know, it's kind of studying studying what everyone else is doing making sure what you're doing is you know unique to that sector at the very least um but yeah always always being the, the sort of the 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 awkward apple that that doesn't it you know, falls far from the tree you know? so how long did it take for you to find tim and make that um, beautiful thing happen yeah, that was, well, that was 2007, so 15 years. I, uh, so Paul, who I was working with as my art director, my, my first art director was in his 40s when I was like 22, 23. Um, and he got a job as a, a creative director, which left me on my own. And I joined an agency called Big, purely because uh, they had an account at the time called WKD, which is a... a like a flavoured like vodka drink where they were able to do some really interesting advertising and I was always a fan of it. It spoke to my age group, it was funny, it was, you know, it was provocative. So um, I was lucky enough to get a job there 
um, Tim was working with another copywriter at the time and he effectively cheated on her with me and we kind of, yeah, splintered off. But Tim and I have uh, exactly the same backgrounds. We, we come from the same kind of small town uh, background. Our, our fathers have very similar life experience. Um, we'd even, you know, going back to music, attended the same shows unbeknownst to each other that we were both there, but we've been to a lot of similar experiences. So yeah, we got on like a house on fire and, you know, 15 years later, we're, you know, still, still best friends, you know. That's pretty incredible. I mean, you know, coming across your brother from another mother and not only just as friends, but as vocational friends that mm. you, you share the same uh, passions and desires and, and throw that together in the mix and come up with some really incredible work, frankly. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, you, you, as, a, as a creative, you're regularly paired with other people and you know, I, I always found it hard to find a groove with people, and especially in the early days. But yeah, Tim and I hit it off pretty quickly. We've got we've got so much in common, but at the same time, I think what really works for us is a skill set, or certainly interests that complement each other. Where you know, I'm my favourite part of the process is the sort of concepting phase at the beginning and developing the idea. Tim, you know, is pretty amazing at implementing. He's happy to sit with, you know, sound engineers and people grading for hours and hours on end. Whereas, you know, I can do an hour and fade away pretty quickly. So it all works. It works pretty well. We, we yeah, we, what he's good at, I'm not so good at. And maybe what I'm good at, you know, he, he's not so interested in or as good at. And he's got kind of the opposite ADHD thing going on. You're, you're getting disconnected and he's like way connected into <laughs> pretty sit, much yeah pretty much he's um he's i often describe him as a control freak whereas i'm kind of yeah prefer to sort of just have an overview and see what's going on and you know help ideas develop but yeah he's really the minutiae um and maybe I, i'm the bigger picture so he effectively when we're delivering things kind of becomes my boss he's telling me what to do what he wants me to do next um and then in the beginning i'm probably a bit more argumentative over you know things i believe in but you know it works we respect the process and yeah we don't we don't question it really. it sounds like the perfect marriage frankly i mean you've discovered the balance you both know your strengths and weaknesses and uh <laughs> and you don't over exploit each other no, exactly. There's a mutual respect for for what we what we do and what we're good at. Um, and you know, it's, it's it's definitely my the longest relationship I've ever been in. So, um, yeah, it's great. It's, yeah, it works out well. And yeah, we, we're we're solid. And yeah, for 15 years on, it's you know we we've turned down jobs even that would would split us up purely because we believe we're we're better as a, a package than than individually. Well, let's talk about reaching this pinnacle of BBC Creative. And mm. after, after Big, you know, you kept your trajectory in that direction. What happened next? Uh, well, after Big, we went to uh, McCann. And we've worked in McCann offices um, kind of all over, really. We worked at Birmingham for a while. That was why we were really established, establishing ourselves. And then whilst in Birmingham, we, we had a brief stint at McCann Berlin. And then 
Later, we, we ended up joining uh, McCann Manchester. From McCann Manchester, we did a, a, a brief uh, creative, our first kind of temporary creative director role at McCann Prague, which was really, really cool. So we got tons of experience from from the big the big network agency, and it was great. Um, you know, I loved being there. But I think the desire to to work with you know an agency that's perhaps a bit more edgy and not as risk averse as the big networks tend to be, because they're dealing with these sort of sort of monster clients and these huge budgets. There there's not a lot of risk taking. So we felt we were making maybe safer work than we, we were comfortable with. So we were looking for something else at McCann and you know, the BBC came knocking and we, we did actually turn them down twice because we, we weren't sure. Joining BBC Creative at the time was a bit of a leap into the unknown. So for Creative has kind of been the pinnacle of in-house ad agencies, certainly in, in the UK, making sort of wonderful, edgy, um, provocative work for so long. We we'd always dreamed of working there someday. So when you know Justin Baramian called us and sold us BBC Creative, it's the BBC's version of Full Creative. You know we we took that risk and you know took a bit of a, a pay cut from where we were. And you know I've never regretted that. It's it's been you know the the fulfilment of of working at the agency you really want to work at, being as prolific as we've been able to be. It's been an absolute joy, absolute joy. Well, the work shows. It it looks like you are pretty unrestricted and have have a lot of uh, creative latitude and are obviously working on projects that, you know, promote you exercising going as deep as you want to go to get to the stuff it's yeah it's been so good i mean it's there's you know the the bbc is public funded so being in the public sector you do there are there's a lot of red tape um and there's a lot of internal politics the uk government kind of used the bbc like a bit of a football you know for, there's a lot of people would like to sort of defund the BBC as in not have it paid for by the public anymore but at the same time you know it's such a vital institution it's it's part of everyone's life there in the UK you cannot go a day without consuming the BBC in some way whether that's listening to the radio or even checking the weather report tends to come from the BBC and of course you know, it's a completely neutral political outlook. So it's so important for the way this society runs, for balance. You know, the, the, I really fear a world without the BBC, you know, you, suddenly you've got, you've got Fox and CNN or whatever, and it's, you've got these sort of partisan sort of broadcasters. But the BBC, you know, I believe is, is really impartial. So it's such a, a vital institution. Anyone who works at the BBC has to really believe in it. And then I suppose, yeah, we're given we're given real license to, to push it. And you know, through your career career you always do push things as far as they can go. But yeah, like I said, when we were at places like McCann, you'd have your kind of super out there idea, your pretty your good progressive idea and your really safe idea. And I always felt that the really safe idea was the one that you'd end up making. At the BBC, we're probably at the other end of that, which is is great because 
doing stuff that is outside of the norm that's unexpected is a way to get noticed and when in a world of netflix and you know disney plus and amazon prime the, you know, the bbc is fighting for its life it's kind of suddenly got new adversaries and new challenges to and you know people consume media in a in a different way we're not turning on the, the tv set at, you know 7 p.m and sitting down for the evening anymore just to watch whatever the bbc is showing you're right the abundance of choice is is quite a frightening place for the bbc but also that makes the bbc in itself very exciting and you know prepared to to do what it takes to to challenge and, and be noticed you're listening to the pure now show a creative podcast for creatives presented by balance well, and you can't be lazy in this environment because, yeah, there's a lot of garbage out there to watch. But if you really want to impact, you have to really work hard to create things that are going to gain people's attention because of the massive amounts of choices they have. And they are now the programmer. This is not, you know, like you said, it's not a TV guide with seven, eight, nine o'clock where your life is planned out for you. You get to sure. choose whatever you want. And that makes it much more challenging for creative people to not take that easy route. Like you said, when you were at McCann, which I want to talk about is working previously before you got this utopic type of situation, creative situation. I want to know some of your trials and tribulations of working at a, a typical agency and you know, how you were able to either fail or succeed depending on you know what the client's needs were how you were able to fill those needs i mean advertising has changed a bit since back in the day i mean it's basically the same but now the parameters have changed and the target audiences have changed and the deliverables have changed but you know it's still kind of you know come up with the greatest ideas and execute them in the most interesting way that you know takes care of the client's needs and produces results. Yeah. How, how did you fare in your early years working uh, in the agency world and, and learning through, you know, successes and failures, how to be where you are now? Um, I suppose, you know, it was, uh, I don't, there's nothing, I mean, Tim and I often talk about our portfolio and our portfolio is pretty much made of the work we've done in the last five years at the BBC, it supersedes everything we've done before. I think I think we fared we fared pretty well. I think we are, Tim and I are pretty adaptable animals in terms of uh, we did. I guess we did thrive within McCann. We we progressed quickly. We we studied our craft. I think we very astute presenters. Um, we, when we got to McCann Manchester, we very quickly became the pitch team where, you know, rather than necessarily looking after certain accounts, we were constantly pitching because we were the team that were, knew how to win those pitches, um, which is, is great. But I also, I suppose, in knowing how to win a pitch suggests that you are a bit of a political animal in in you know our job was was to get things over the line and that's what made us very popular at McCann and also it's there's so much value on just winning the business I felt rather than necessarily doing the work it was about getting getting new clients on the balance sheet really um, which is fine 
and then kind of keeping them as long as possible. But I kind of fell out of love with it when you know, we were winning certain accounts. And then as happens in agencies, the sort of the younger, less experienced people take on the day-to-day -day running of that. And I, I felt a little bit fraudulent that you'd spend, you know, months building these relationships and, and everything. And relationships is what is a key to good work. It's you, if you get on well with your marketing director colleague from your client, you know, you, you're able to sort of develop a friendship and a trust. That's when you make good stuff. It's, it's when they trust you, they believe in you. But, you know, my experience was we'd do that and then I'd rarely ever, we'd rarely ever see those clients again because we're off trying to win the next, the next pitch. And then I suppose when you win the awards and you become more senior and you become a, a department head and a creative director, also your, the, your, the rate you're charged down to goes up ridiculously to a point where you're not allowed to your you the agency can't afford for you to work on maybe the more interesting clients which tend to be the ones that you know pay pay less you know they're not the the, the big sort of beer moth client so suddenly we, the stuff where we knew there was opportunity for doing something really cool because they were a bit of a challenger brand was was out of our reach you know if we did it on the books because my other half emma was an account director at the time she would say to me i, I literally can't afford for you and tim to work on this account i don't know if i got it which seemed crazy and that you know something's broken in the in the agency system and this was five years ago and i, I believe it's changing now those sort of pricing structures are, are really outdated but yeah that was that was that was tough but yeah like i say we were we were obviously pretty good at sort of climbing and, and eventually we were put on the board at McCann. So yeah, it was a, a fascinating time. It was a great time. I learned so much, um, but also didn't want to get caught up in the machine, which I think some creatives do where you get so promoted and your salary becomes so inflated that you can't really leave because to leave would be taking a, a substantial drop in the world to which you become very comfortable. Um, so I loved it, uh, but also realized it, it probably wasn't for me. And that's not to say in 10 years time, I think, you know, what I could really do with that security. But yeah, at the time I'd, I felt that, you know, as we were kind of, Tim and I were in our mid thirties, now was the time we, we really needed to make our, our best work. And the gamble of the BBC, which it was a gamble, yeah, really paid off. And it was, it's been a, a very good fit for us. Well, let's talk about some of your projects back then, and, and they don't have to be by name, but I'm interested in maybe something you worked on that ended up being a total nightmare, uh, and you delivered it, and you learned from it, but it was not a comfortable experience for you, and how you dealt with that. Well, there's one actually, I won't, I won't name name, but it was a, a, we won, first thing we did, we got, Tim and I arrived at McCann, Manchester on a, a Monday morning, we're taken straight into a HR with all the induction processes. Within 20 minutes, we were called out of that induction process saying there was a, a opportunity brief that we need to get on this pitch. It was for a big furniture retailer. We worked on this pitch for um, a few months 
and did something very radical within the space because you know furniture retail is 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 pictures of the, the a sofa and a, and a price you know not particularly interesting so we did something a real sort of brand building piece which you know was really exciting it was the potential was to serialize what we were doing so i don't know if you've ever heard of the Bisto family in the UK. It was like a, it's ongoing, it was an advertising campaign for Bisto gravy, or Oxo, sorry, not Bisto, Oxo cubes, which is a, a beef stock cube. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so this family became an ongoing saga and, you know, growing up, it was, okay, what's the new Oxo commercial? So we kind of came up with a similar thing for this furniture uh, retailer. And, it was all going very well. There was a few red flags, I guess, from the client in the in the pitch process. There was a, a history of changing agency once every three years. You know, but obviously you're optimistic at the time, you think you're gonna change this. So we made the work, we spent exorbitant amounts of money making the first commercials, which were essentially episodes, um, this campaign and Within a week of it running, it was pulled because their sales figures, they had dropped because they were all about, here's a sofa, here's the price, buy this now. You know, kind of companies that are always on the verge of bankruptcy. And, you know, we'd sold them the the value of building a brand and, you know, how it's a long-term project. Yeah, so that kind of, that disappeared you know, a couple of weeks from the pitch, or a couple of weeks after we, we'd won the pitch, we'd made the, the films, the entire campaign was chucked away, which was soul destroying at the time, really. You know, we kind of thought this would be a famous campaign, and I, you know, I still believe it would have been. To then suddenly having to oversee people making furniture commercials, which is, you know, I need to show uh, six sofas in 30 seconds and you've got to say this was the price and this is now the price and you know that was that was tough that was it's difficult to work on stuff like that if you've got zero interest in in what you're doing because you know you essentially you you're you know not to denigrate you know people who work in those places but I might as well go and work in the furniture shop because I'm doing the same job as a salesperson where I'm just presenting a price and getting people to to sign up um, right. you know they're kind of places that are always in sale the sale never ends so that was that was disappointing but I suppose we learned we had again had is had it gave us a lot of maturity I suppose in the end that you know advertising and creative industry isn't always a utopia where you know, you're perhaps always right or, you know, because obviously there was a, a factor of we, we weren't quite right because we would have, you know, I'm not sure what, how long that would have taken to build that brand. So there's accepting, accepting that. Learning to have other expertise as well is important and accept that there's people that know better than you, I think has really been, I mean, it's quite a, quite an awakening. But yeah, that was probably, that's the one, the tough project that started off like it could have been a, a game changer and, you know, crumbled very, very quickly. But yeah, you, you, you live and learn. And now I think, you know, if I end up back in the commercial advertising world, we'll always avoid furniture retailers. <laughs> well, let's talk about the opposite now. 
Let's talk about yeah. a project that surprisingly went really well and uh, also, you know, a learning experience, but you know, you got to execute what you wanted. The client was happy and, uh, and it was a magnificent uh, thrill for you to do whatever you did. Uh, well, again, we were working at an agency called Big um, and they had Domino's Pizza in the UK and we'd actually lost the account. Um, Tim and I started working on the account when it was kind of on its way. And we'd been given the date and in the budget, they had a small amount of money, you know, maybe £5,000, you know, and challenges can, you know, do something with that. You need to spend that. That's part of the budget. What can you do? So we were having a think and uh, it was around the time, you know, drones were becoming sort of mass market things. And so we were joking um, about how uh, pizzas would one day be delivered by robots or, or drones. I love that piece. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's awesome. So it's like the first, yeah. it, was the first, it was the first time anyone had done, you know, a proof of concept video of a pizza being delivered by drones. Even though the video we made, there was no pizza in that box because right. if you put pizza on the drone couldn't lift at the time, yeah. it was quite, quite basic. So we had yeah very little money to to hire uh, a pretty crappy camera, um, a small amount of editing time, and we invented this thing called the Domicopter, which was uh, Domino's first drone delivery. We create a, a, um, a proof of concept film, and then we put it out on April Fool's Day. And away we go! Ha oh, ha! Oh, very funny. Um, so we made this spoof film. I don't know what happened, but we something went wrong in editing where we missed this April Fool's Day deadline and it wasn't ready until like the end of May or June. <laughs> um, which, which actually turns out to be a complete blessing because if you're doing something where you're trying to fool people or to you know send it viral to get it shared, doing it on April Fool's Day when everyone's doing it is exactly, that- A little exactly cliche, yeah. Yeah, it's, it would have been rubbish. Yeah. So that was a thing in disguise. So we put it, we sent it to Domino's and they said, okay, we'll put it on our Facebook page in the UK. And we're like, okay, thinking that's a bit underwhelming, but fine. And we wrote the post and sent it to them. That was on Friday. I think we went to the pub. And then on Sunday night, having forgotten about it really, because it's not its not like an amazing film. It's like thoroughly okay. And we've kind of, well, that's that. We've, we're not going to work on Domino's anymore. Got a call saying, I don't know if you, you know this, but you're on Jay Leno tonight. Jay, Jay's going to open the show with talking about this Domicopter. <laughs> so we went online, the, the views of this film we'd made were then in the middle, in the millions. And it was getting shared and it's, it gone crazy that people were so excited about this drone. They thought it was a real thing. And then, yeah, Jay Leno opened with the show. Stephen Colbert did a piece on it. Uh, it was on one of the, uh, maybe NBC or something like that, did a piece, uh, interview people in the street. They did Vox Pops on, on a morning show. Absolutely crazy. It went absolutely mad from, you know, £5,000 and a, a thoroughly uninterested client and account team. It was Tim and I with a camera and a guy that could fly drones. Did a, went out for a couple of hours and made a pretty average film and yeah, went crazy. So 
yeah, that was that was the first time I think we tasted sort of super success. Obviously, the awards followed, and yeah, it was kind of I guess looking back, probably a bit of a game changer in our our ambition. Certainly, I think we suddenly realised that we could do way more than than was being asked of us. And how fascinating is it that for five thousand pounds? and a client that was at the back door with one foot out and you had nothing to lose. They obviously had nothing to lose. And in the most simplified production manner, you created something that went nuts without all the bells and whistles. I mean, other than the drone and the pizza, uh, which my friend who makes little airplanes wanted to make a pizza plane and deliver all over (laughs) Vietnam. Uh, That whole simple concept people literally ate it up and probably would have been, you know, pounding their phones to hit the app to get the drone to bring the pizza. Like right now, I can't even imagine the skies filled with pizza drones, but I, I, that's got to happen at some point. Yeah, it, sure. was, it was. It, yeah, hopefully. Well, one danger is, is that having received that piece and the, the rotor blades in your face, you kind of, someone's going to get seriously injured. But um, so it was flawed, I guess. Yeah, just crazy when, you know, there were no longer, we were no longer being scrutinized. Domino's left anyway. But, you know, I suppose we made it awkward for them to leave in that they'd had in the UK this, they put this film out and the UK film had gone, you know, big in the US and uh, there was a big segment on TV in India. So it went, yeah, it went really crazy. But yeah, it was, um, yeah, super gratifying. Um, yeah, really felt like we'd, we took a step forward in our, our careers at that point. So what happened after that? I mean, now you've, you've experienced something completely by surprise. It's not like you were working hard on this campaign and had certain level of expectations. You had zero expectations that this would do anything, uh, but in fact, it had a lot of impact on you professionally. So how did you take that momentum and, and continue on with that? Um, I think it ignited a bit of a, a fire in terms of the work we, we did. I think from that point onwards, you know, and what we did was always ambitious, the stuff we really wanted to make, but I think it went more so. And I think we learned that there's a certain amount of, you know, as a creative director, you can't just sit in an ivory tower and expect people to do things. Tim and I still very much get our hands dirty. We're happy to, you know, we will sit. If something, if a team's having a problem, we'll stay up till midnight writing stuff and throwing ideas together. You know, like I say, Tim especially happy to, you know, sit with uh, sound engineers and engraving sessions or, you know, how do we, working out how we get the, if we haven't got the budget to do something one way, you know, that's looking to stuff, um, how we can do it another way. So I suppose it's making sure, you know, we are, we're never compromised and we never kind of accept defeat first time round. There has to be another way. Um, so I think it, it really helped our, our personalities and our approach to the work, which in creative terms, I think it's always, you know, talent is brilliant, but talent only gets you so far. It's the, it's the willingness to, to go the extra mile and really push things um, where, you know, other teams who, you know, other people who we see, you know, to have perfectly good careers, but maybe never win the awards or never 
never quite get the, the fame that, you know, let's be honest, we're all driven by ego in this industry. You know, we want our work to be seen. You know, never quite get that. So we we always work hard on you know doing doing the extra stuff that you know maybe it's other people are unwilling to do. Um, and I think that's what Domicopter taught us. That was a real sort of do-it-yourself project, which we we saw through with you know just you've got a flash of hope that this might do something or be celebrated in some way. But yeah, it taught taught us about you've. You've got to, you've got to really drive yourself. Your, you know, your. There's a great saying which is in, you know, in the story of your your life. Make sure you're the one holding the pen. You know, not relying on, on other people. Did you take that conceptual exercise and apply that in any other way afterwards? That actually had some success and got some uh, traction. Um, I think we, we've always tried to, you know, we're told we have, um, say, billboards, for example. You know, it's like, well, what can we do beyond making to an, an ordinary billboard? So something we did recently for um, uh, an Our Planet series by the BBC was, with David Attenborough, was to uh, create a piece called the, the Burning Billboard. And, you know, so it's really helping the the people that put that together work out what we can do feasibly and, you know, can't actually be on fire. Does copious amounts of steam look like smoke and we get some orange light and things like that. So it's certainly, it's the Domicopter experience that drives things like that, the, the extra stuff. And even when we, for 2018, the World Cup in Russia, we made a, an ad out of... Um, embroidery. Every stop motion frame was a separate piece of embroidered uh, material. You know, and everyone says you're mad, you can do this by CGI, stop wasting time, um, and everything else, but it's it's doing that and making sure when you know, the people making the doing the embroidery, the, the, the embroidery company are kind of going, we don't want to do this anymore, making sure Tim and I are there to understand what their problem is, how can we how can we smooth this for you? How can we make this easier? It's just not leaving that to other people. And there's a fine line in being, you know, a control freak and being overbearing. But it's always knowing, you know, being the master of the ship and knowing what bits are moving, where the problems are, and giving that your attention, not thinking I'm a creative director. I'll send my producer to do that, or I send whoever to do that. It's you know taking responsibility, and I think that's that's really important. You're listening to the Pure Now Show, a creative podcast for creatives, presented by Balance. I think you've kind of passively given a lot of advice, and uh, but I want to be more direct in my question about providing advice to, let's say, younger people coming up in the creative industry who have aspirations of becoming creative directors um you know it's obviously a much different world now than the world you started in and but those young people are starting in this world uh that's current and present uh what advice do you have for people who are interested in in creating tv commercials and in getting into the real visual industry and uh, uh, making impact through uh, marketing and advertising. 
what's what's a good approach for them especially since there's so much competition now and, yeah, yeah. And, and and just the fact that you know there's millions of portfolios online i mean before everything was a physical one-off one-of-a-kind i remember looking at hundreds of portfolios but that was all of them it wasn't millions uh, infinite numbers of them uh how does someone differentiate themselves and 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 get create that opportunity for themselves I think, you know, everyone is, there's so many talented people, but I think the people that always catch my eye are the, the persistent ones, the ones that you can feel the hunger in terms of, you know, I get, I'm lucky enough to get many messages every day saying, can you give me a book crit? And to be honest, I get so many, I ignore most of them. Um, you know, certain days I ignore all of them. But it's the names that keep popping up. They think, okay, he hasn't replied. I'm going to try again. I'm going to try a different way. You know, I've been, I've, I'm lucky enough to have teams have accosted me in the street. They've waited outside the BBC. They've called me on the phone. They've just done different things or they've done something that makes them stand out. If you're, I suppose, if you're a creative and you've got your online portfolio and you think it's me in the portfolio, that's enough. It's, it's often not, unless you are, you know, lucky enough to get an interview, it's it's getting your foot in the door and you've got to be creative in how you do that. You know, and there are so many ways, but you can't, you can't sit on the sidelines and wait for someone's, you know, someone's going to ask you to dance. You've kind of get, got to get up in their face, I think. Well, certainly that works, works on me. It's when someone is not annoying i mean sometimes people are so annoying i think i've got to give you an interview because you it's this effort you're going to is amazing and it goes back to what i say about effort and your willingness to sort of push things and i think people being persistent in contacting you or creating something to get your specific attention shows remarkable effort and I'm, I'm impressed every single time and I can almost guarantee that if you don't get a you know a session with me I'll certainly the senior teams I will I will delegate to, to them or to the to the creatives that run our placement program at the BBC you'll certainly see them but if your approach is to send a, a random email with your uh, portfolio attached and then never follow it up you know that's so does everyone else you know shock horror there's like every every creative director will be getting 10 of those a day right that's yeah. it only 10 well uh, ten, i'm trying now i'm not trying to say, um, how many do i get but yeah so it's it's yeah exactly but i think also the 10 to me would be frightening it's you know there's only maybe 30 creatives in our department we're not you know, we're not desperate for talent. You've got to, right. you've really got to force the issue. Right. You know, when you were talking about McCann, all I had in the, I was having these flashbacks of the show Mad Men. I don't know <laughs> right. why. Were you a fan when it was around? I absolutely loved Mad Men and then died slightly when McCann, awkwardly in New York, put out some ads saying McCann is the most mentioned advertising agency in, in Mad Men. And then... Uh, is it Matthew Weiner who wrote it got upset by this so 
in one of the first episodes of season two, they talk about um, one of, I think it's Ken Cosgrove, the character's name, he goes to McCann and they say, what's, <laughs> what's McCann like? And he talks about he hasn't been amongst that many sort of crazy people since he, he went to work with his mother in a, you know, a mental hospital in New York City. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, it's a bit cringeworthy, but there are people at McCann, um, or certainly were, who saw themselves as the a latter-day Don Draper, for sure, which was, you know, it's, it's so dated now. Um, that, that approach to the world, it's, it really do, it doesn't exist like that. And I think for the good. For sure. I, it's super fun to watch, though. What an amazing... <laughs> I mean, because I, even as a kid, I, you know, I dreamed of being a commercial artist. And I, I had these visions of, like, you know, the pitching and the, just the cool thing of being on the pulse of everything that's happening for everything that's being sold, essentially. And, yeah, sure. And that was the ultimate narrative for that entire beginning of what advertising looked like. So yeah, perfect. Yeah. All right. My, my closing question is if you could not do what you're doing and you had to stop anything related to that, what would you want to be doing? In terms of an an alternative career? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, th- I find I find fulfillment always in being creative. So in you know, music, um, being at home more often allows me to play my guitar much more often. I I'm, I've reached an age where I've become quite interested in in gardening and sort of you know I love the outdoors and you know to do another. I often look at the the guys you know, drive, you know, mowing lawns and thing, you know, but with real pride and creating these wonderful sort of outdoor spaces that, that fascinates me. So whatever it would be, it would certainly be creative and will probably be outdoors. I think I'd like to be outdoors a, a lot more, you, you know, becoming chained to a, a laptop and a, a desk becomes, you know, after a while you, you realize that there, there's way more to life. And I think, you know, certainly, you know, I've had certain awakenings where it's maybe been, I've been too focused on, on the job we do and it's defined me way too much. Um, so yeah, just, just in, enjoying the things that I enjoy doing and it's sometimes the mindless task of, of mowing a lawn, but certainly creating, you know, something beautiful elsewhere. James, it's been super fun to chat with you. Really appreciate you taking a trip down memory lane with me and and sharing stories with me and uh, all the best to you. Thank you so much. You too. Have a have a great rest evening. I, I'd imagine. But, yeah, um, we're, yeah, we're at three o we're at three o three p.m. here. You're you're just okay. getting started. Okay. Well, well, yeah. Enjoy your evening. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Sure, man. If you enjoyed the Pure Now show, you can check out more episodes at balancestudio.tv or anywhere fine podcasts are broadcast. Pure Now is produced and engineered by Hai Ha Dang and directed by Dong Wun Guan. Thanks so much for watching.